This is the Game Dev Field Guide bonus episode number 12. Today's special guest, Kevin Donnelly. This episode is sponsored by the Game Dev Field Guide community patrons. The bonus episode is a free third episode that everyone gets per month, and it's all thanks to the generosity of the patrons. If you'd like to become a patron and support the show, as well as vote on episode topics and get a special Discord role, I'll leave a link in the show notes. With the intro out of the way, let's move on over to the first segment of the show, Buff Debuff. Buff Debuff is a game we play on bonus episodes where community members send in sort of single word or single sentence topics. And I don't do any beforehand research. I kind of just read them quickfire and give my opinion on them. And I'll say whether I think they're buffed or trending up or improving or in general good or debuffed, which is trending down. Um, maybe something that has uh, left some stuff to be desired. So yeah, let's jump into our first topic. Our first topic, and I sort of interpreted this one, um, is quest guidance. I think this is a very topical um, first word to react to or sentence to react to uh, with the release of Elden Ring, which actually doesn't have as much quest guidance as a typical RPG or open world game like that might have. And it's brought up some good discourse on Twitter and kind of all over the place uh, where game devs discuss. And yeah, I think it brings up the question is like handholding during quests or handholding in the game really, especially in an open world game, telling someone specifically where to go, is that buffed or debuffed? I think personally in 80% of cases, it's buffed. I say 80% of cases because I do think you can make a less handholdy kind of not that much quest guidance style work, but it requires some really good level design, game design, and yeah, it just has to be done on like the right sort of game, and I think Elden Ring is that sort of game. It's a little bit more hardcore, it's not as handholdy, and it kind of fits the style of the game. Let's compare that to something like GTA. I think trying to navigate that city and go to all the various story quests without like a marker or a GPS or something like that would be difficult. And you're kind of losing the fun of the game in trying to navigate the dense city, which ironically is what's cool about that game. But when we play games, we like to like leave annoying things in the real world behind and like navigating a dense city and figuring out all the roads and stuff that's an annoying thing that can just be left in the real world that doesn't have to come into the video games you know i always look at these things through like an indie dev lens and uh yeah i would say for an indie dev quest guidance is probably buffed 80 percent of the time unless you're specifically going for that more hardcore less handholdy experience i'm gonna say guiding your player is buffed the next topic is the rpg maker game engine now i've never used the rpg maker game engine so take my opinion with a grain of salt but i would think it's 
slightly debuffed. And my rationale for that is any engine that's focused on specifically making RPGs, and I think RPG Maker is kind of in that JRPG style, sort of like the older Final Fantasy games. My problem with it is that you're going to take all this time to learn this tool, this engine, and you're only going to be able to make that one style of game. I think no matter what, when starting a game project, you're going to take a long time to make the game. It's going to take a long time to learn the tools, despite RPG Maker, maybe its marketing has made it seem like it's really fast and easy, and maybe it is fast and easy compared to the other engines, um, but you're still going to spend hours and hours making something. So if you're going to spend all that time, you might as well learn a game engine that'll let you make other kinds of games, including RPG games. You could make just as good RPG games with Unity, for instance, and then also when you're done with the project, you have knowledge of Unity to go make something else and you're not just stuck to one genre. I think there is something to be said for a game engine that's made specifically for one thing, and maybe it fits that workflow a little better. I bet you could make an RPG faster in RPG Maker because that's what it's geared towards. But I think game dev is more of a marathon than a sprint, and so faster, to me, is not always more valuable to my game dev career. In the long run, I think I would rather develop skills with an all-around engine like Unity. So for that, RPG Maker is slightly debuffed. The next topic is NSFW games or not safe for work games. I'm assuming by this they mean um, sort of the adult genre games. And I don't really know what to do about these. Are they buffed or debuffed? I'm going to say, I guess, that they're slightly buffed. In a world of indie games where it's really hard to stand out because there's so many games coming out, uh, being part of a niche community like this might actually be a way to help uh, narrow yourself from the crowd. The problem often with niche communities is there's not a big enough community for you and others to sustain themselves. But I think NSFW is, let's face it, on the internet, a large community. There's plenty of users, I guess. So if you're going to pick a niche community, you, you might as well pick one of the biggest. So yeah, I guess for its ability to maybe help you stand out a little from the crowd, I'm going to say NSFW Games, or making them, is slightly buffed. The next topic is extremely niche, but I think it points to something bigger and a bigger idea. Um, the topic is letting the player change the menu music. I think this alone is slightly buffed, but the larger topic I want to talk about is the sort of ratio between what it takes to make something in your game and how much it's appreciated by the players. Changing the menu music seems like a really small thing, and... It's also, I guess, a small thing that the players might appreciate, so this has almost a one-to-one -one ratio from work to enjoyment. But basically, when looking at really niche things like this, this is how I always measure them up. I say, how much is the players actually going to enjoy it versus how much work would it take for me to make this? Let's think about it this way. If I have the menu music already, maybe I bought a bunch of music, just generic menu music, 
then this is a really tiny thing I can do uh, that is just like a nice bit of polish. But if I had to make my own new menu music track, then all of a sudden the hours of work that go into this thing that provides the same level of enjoyment, you got to figure many people might not even know you can change the menu music. That ratio starts to change. So I think that just is a sort of segue to how I measure if I think something is worth it when making a game, especially how I weigh up these sort of really tiny decisions. So for menu music or letting the player change the menu music, I guess it's buffed if you already have extra music. Maybe it starts to move into the debuff territory if it starts to take more work, like you having to actually make more music just for this one little thing that many people might not even notice. And our last topic for today is DLC that changes the genre of a game. Now, this is an interesting case, and um, the poster of this, Mugga Moo Moo, gave an example, um, City Skylines, which is like a city builder, and it's Natural Disaster DLC, which I haven't played the Natural Disaster DLC, so I'm not sure, like, how much it changes up the formula. I would say you got to think about DLC different ways. There's sort of the older style of DLC where it's extra content for the game that maybe makes it fresh or new. You can kind of think of them like standalone experiences. And in order to get players to want to buy them, you'd have to change up the game. Whereas nowadays with like live service games, DLC is kind of more like little changes and tweaks. Maybe just maps or new characters or stuff like that. And I think with the newer live service uh, kind of DLCs, you're less likely to do something as drastic as change the genre or infuse like a new genre into the game. With older DLCs, that style where you do infuse kind of different things, whole new mechanics, whole new ideas into the game, I would say this is, um, I would say it's slightly buffed, I guess. This is a good way for, if we're looking at it from the indie dev perspective, I think it's a good way to get those things in the game that were like on your wish list but didn't make the final cut. And maybe you can use a DLC to really flesh out those ideas and infuse those kind of ideas that maybe you got from other genres into your game. At the end of the day, for the player in this instance, it's optional whether they buy the DLC or not. Oftentimes, if you go on Steam and you look at DLCs, the reviews will say, like, is it required or not? Is this something that makes the base game better? Or is it something only for, like, a niche audience that enjoys this kind of thing? Or does it make the game worse? So, yeah, it's kind of optional if the player wants to buy it. And if they do, that works out great for you. Not only did you get to get your extra ideas that got cut from the original game in, um, you get to make a little bit more money off your game, and the players get a renewed experience. The problem comes in live service games, where the DLC kind of brings baseline changes to the game. In these newer styles of DLC, it's kind of like the game gets a uh, new facelift, and then you can pay for DLC to get the plus version of that facelift. 
The problem is that if players don't like the direction the game's going in, maybe it's kind of infusing ideas from other genres or it even does a whole on genre change, that would be really drastic for a live service game. But let's just, for the sake of the argument, say that happened. That could ruin a game, especially a live service game that needs a constant community. So I think for the newer style of kind of live service DLC, um, changing your genre certainly would be very tricky and I would say is debuffed. But for that older style where it's totally optional and it's sort of an expansion to the base game, experimenting with new genres or ideas from other genres uh, could be slightly buffed. So yeah, that's going to wrap it up for buff debuff. I really like doing it and I love all the crazy topics uh, that get thrown uh, into the mix. If you have an idea for a good topic, please go over to the community discord. There's an open invite link in the show notes and go to the buff debuff channel and just drop your ideas in there. Sometimes you might even get people who just uh, leave their opinion um, on your topics in there. I tend to save all my opinions for the actual show, but of course we have custom buff and debuff emojis in the community discord. So I'm sure people won't be shy about sharing their opinion with buff debuff out of the way. Let's move on over to the second segment. Our second segment is always a key thought from a special guest. Today's special guest is Kevin Donnelly. Kevin is working with a co-founder on a game called Chaotic Era. Chaotic Era is an interstellar real-time strategy game inspired by 80s sci-fi and unlike any other mobile gaming experience. Notably, it was named one of the most anticipated indie games of 2021 by Polygon, and it will be coming out to iOS later this year. If you know me, you'll know I'm a big sci-fi fan, and um, the first marketing tweet I actually saw about Chaotic Era is captioned, The Universe is a Dark Forest, which I believe is a reference to a solution to the Fermi Paradox. And yeah, so far from what I've read from the story on their website, it's got all sorts of cool sort of realistic sci-fi influences and it's the kind of thing that I know I will really like. So when Kevin reached out to me to get on the show, I was really pumped and he has a great talk today about designing your games backwards. And he kind of goes into the methods that um, went into designing Chaotic Era. So without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Kevin Donnelly. Hi everyone, my name is Kevin and I'm the co-founder of Bobby Technology, the indie studio behind Chaotic Era, which is an upcoming minimalist sci-fi RTS. Uh, today we're going to talk about something, I guess, a little unusual. I want to talk to you guys about designing a game backwards, uh, which is something that we mostly did by accident, but uh, nonetheless was a super interesting experience and I want to I just walk all of you through uh, what that was like what we learned, and, uh, and why I would do it again if, uh, if given the chance. So, uh, Chaotic Era. It's, uh, as I mentioned, it's a, it's a strategy game that we've been working on now for a number of years. Um, but originally, it didn't start as a strategy game. It actually started as a piece of UI, um, a map, 
actually. And so that probably seems a little odd. I mean, it seems a little odd when I say it out loud, the idea that a game would start as a map. Maps are usually the, uh, you know, a bit of the afterthought uh, when it comes to game design. Um, but uh, yes, for us, it was a map. And so, uh, you know, to, to further explain that and to further give you guys context, uh, it actually goes back to when myself and my co-founder, Gabe O'Flaherty Chan, first met. And that was uh, when we were both working on the experimental products team at Shopify. Uh, the two of us became fast friends. And one of the things that we first bonded over uh, was actually a shared passion for fantasy and sci-fi uh, UI and interfaces, which I know it's super uh, dorky. It's it's something super niche, but it was something that we both realized. Like, hey, this is uh, this is something that we've both been uh, so interested in uh, for a long time. And so, you know, that was whether it was uh, uh, the interfaces in movies like Oblivion, uh, the the Tom Cruise movie from 2013 or 2014. Or from uh, you know '90s anime like Ghost in the Shell or Gundam Wing, any sort of uh, of interface that we could find, we were just you know having fun sending them back and forth, and, and then we kind of came to this uh, idea one day where we were like, man, it would be so cool if we made a game that felt like you were actually using one of these uh, sci-fi interfaces from you know an '80s or '90s. Uh, sci-fi movie and so that that sparked all sorts of thoughts in our heads but uh, so the first thing that came out of that was a UI exploration uh, like I mentioned it was it was a map because we challenged ourselves to think about okay you know let's imagine that we're in the world of alien or blade runner and we're some sort of industrial designer and we're designing uh, you know one of those amazing consoles from from the original alien uh, and we're trying to visualize what does it look like to navigate space on an older two-dimensional-ish uh, analog display? And so we we came up with all sorts of different mocks, but eventually landed on this uh, this lens-based, as we call it, lens-based. It's it's a series of interlocking arches and circles that would allow the player to kind of visualize a, a star map as if it were on a globe within a globe within a globe and you know this is obviously <laughs> i guess audio is not the best uh medium to describe ui and to to convey what an interface looks like um but we came up with this very minimalist black and white monochrome uh interface that was heavily you know inspired by a lot of the stuff like i said from alien from blade runner from blade runner 2049 um from all sorts of different sci-fi uh and anime uh, influences. Uh, you know, we've always admired the aesthetic of uh, movies like Star Wars, especially the original trilogy, but then even a lot of the newer stuff that that harkens back to that same vibe of this like analog, you know, dirty industrial vision of the future that was that was put together before uh, touchscreens and complex holographic interfaces and all sorts of other things were even thought of. And and frankly, it's almost a, a vision of the future of interfaces that feels a little more, I mean, it feels more realistic to me. <laughs> Maybe it's not realistic, but uh, interfaces that just felt like tactile, felt actually usable, felt like um, things that could exist in the real world and weren't just completely outlandish. So uh, that's where that first piece of UI came from. And of course, you know, now we had this 
really interesting piece of UI and really interesting uh, interactions that came out of that. But we still didn't have a game or any idea what kind of game uh, we'd be making. And so we messed around with this map for a while. Uh, we spent honestly a long time. Like, like I think I, I mentioned uh, earlier, we've been working on this game now for uh, I think over four years. And there was a long time spent just on that map and figuring out what could be done uh, with this really interesting, intriguing interface that we created. And so we explored a, a few different ideas, like, is this a, you know, mobile minimalist space exploration game like Elite Dangerous? Is this some sort of um, competitive war simulator RTS like uh, Mertz, which is a, a mildly interesting RTS, which was a mobile game that uh, me and Gabe played a lot and got a, got a lot of uh, mileage on. Um, we, we tossed around a lot of ideas. And, I mean, eventually we, we just kept kind of fleshing out, okay, so we can navigate one star system. Uh, what if it's an entire galaxy? What if it's an entire universe? What do those interactions look like? And uh, before we knew it, we were, again, just really investing in almost this, like, made-up piece of technology that was like a GPS for, uh, you know, the universe. Uh, and we started building that out. And then eventually, you know, we, we started thinking like, okay, what if, you know, this is a strategy game and you do have to build ships and those ships are stored on each planet? Like, okay, what does that look like? How do we visualize an inventory system for a planet? And that's when we actually started doing a lot of explorations that kicked off what the game would truly become. Um, we started, you know, thinking okay, maybe each planet has this kind of inventory menu, like something like, you know, uh, Resident Evil or, or something like that, where you have the grid and each item takes up a different amount of grid tiles and you have to like rearrange them to fit. And, and that's how you manage your inventory on each planet. Um, and eventually we found that we were just spending so much time, again, investing in the inventory system and, you know, doing mocks and doing different designs for it and trying to flesh out this like fake, 80s sci-fi computer that we had built uh, at a certain point we were like you know what the inventory system is really cool and we actually like spending time in this and we had kind of started to design it as if it was this uh, isometric 3d visualization of a planet's surface on a grid and that's where you stored your ships and eventually we were like what if what if this inventory area is actually uh the game like what if that's the main area which is pretty funny and it's actually the reason why for a long time we called that area of the game the garage and still in the code that area even though that's now just the main world area of of the the game where, where most of the gameplay takes place it's still called the garage which uh obviously would be quite confusing uh if you didn't have that context so uh eventually we started flushing that out more we were suddenly, uh, you know, realizing the player was going to spend all their time in an inventory management area. And of course, that introduced all sorts of other questions of, OK, uh, so this is no longer just a grid that you're storing and stacking items on, like in, you know, a Resident Evil or whatever to try and make use of. It's like suddenly this is actually kind of like a planet in a play area that a, a player will have to navigate and look around and explore and it's got to have room for interesting stuff. It can't just be, uh, you know, filled with your your items and your ships and, and everything like that. And so we started to explore, okay, what does that look like? Like, 
again, if we're thinking about the game map as a computer trying to visualize the entire surface of a planet uh, on a grid, uh, how can we make that one, you know, true to the original ethos we had here of trying to design something that felt like a real computer system from uh, an 80s sci-fi movie, but two, also be something explorable and uh, that felt like a real full world. And so we, we started to space things out. You know, we realized, okay, we need to have room for terrain, uh, points of interest. We need to actually give the player uh, things to do in this space. Uh, that's when we also started developing a system, which again became a core component to uh, Chaotic Era, which was the energy harvesting system. And so any good real-time strategy game is obviously centered around resource management, uh, you know, harvesting and, and using uh, resources to build new units. And so uh, at this point in the game, we again had, we had a map, we had an inventory system, uh, but we didn't have resources. We didn't have, I mean, if you look, it's funny, if you look up the definition of, of 4X, of a 4X game, right? Uh, we had no X's. We just had, again, interfaces. And so we realized we got to start building out uh, these components. And so, like I said, we started to develop our, our energy harvesting uh, system that would allow the player to actually connect nodes on the planet's surface up to their units to give them power, to help their population increase, to stabilize their society. Um, we realized, hey, you know, if you're out in space, like what does that experience actually look and feel like? Like it's actually a really dangerous thing to be out in space. It's actually really scary. Uh, and so we started to draw on things like SimCity 2000 uh, and the disaster system in that game and go, you know what? We should make this a game of survival against, uh, you know, the, the horrors and the, the absolute uh, hopelessness of, of life in deep space. Um, and so suddenly we found ourselves building this interesting survival real-time strategy game with this extremely stylized uh, 80 sci-fi aesthetic. Um, and like I, I mentioned at first, the, the funny thing is, is that that was not our intention going into this per se. Uh, we, we came at it with, you know, we want to design a fake sci-fi computer and play around with that and and see what that would feel like and, and kind of imagine that we were using these computers from from Blade Runner. And everything spiraled out from there. And so um, even though that process took us a very long time, it took a long time, it took a lot of explorations, it took a lot of design dead ends. Uh, it honestly, to me, was one of the most fun ways that we could have attacked a project like this because it one allowed me and Gabe to just completely indulge our love for these, uh, these fake interfaces, uh, and just do so many deep dives into different movies and games and TV shows and, you know, anime and comics and everything, and just seek out these amazing interfaces and study them and think about how we could use some of the elements or be inspired by the elements or whatever that might be. Um, and it ended up creating this, what I think is a really interesting looking game and a really interesting feeling game that now has a lot of the DNA of uh, a classic, uh, you know, 90s golden age RTS, but infused with this uh, darkness, this ominousness of, a, of an 80s sci-fi outer space movie. So uh, yeah, it was, it was a super long journey to get to this point. And it was 
definitely not easy and it was not without its challenges. But I feel like if if me and Gabe had gone into this thinking that we just wanted to make a RTS in outer space, it would have looked quite different. It would have felt different. It would have played different. And the world that we've uh, crafted around chaotic era and the the atmosphere and the vibe, they they definitely wouldn't have been there. So even though we approach this in a completely backwards and uh, and bizarre fashion for building a game, uh, it's it's totally an approach that I would. Actually, I don't know if I would recommend it because it's kind of hard to recommend this approach because it's it's so it's so specific. But I would definitely I would definitely encourage people to to when they're building games and especially uh, you know smaller games and experimental games like definitely uncouple yourself from uh, what is expected of the process of game development. Um, you know, not to sound like pretentious about it or anything like that, but I, I think sometimes just putting aside a lot of those preconceived notions of the process you should go through and the way you should prototype and, and how you should do things, um, putting that aside and instead focusing on what, what's the thing that I really love about this concept? What is the most important thing to me? What is the thing I find most interesting? And if you, you know, if you think about games and game development, game design as an art form, uh, it's, it's what is that message I'm trying to get across? What's the feeling I'm trying to express? It's almost like any painter or any filmmaker or uh, anyone creating any other art. Obviously, there are guidelines and guardrails that you have to stay within, but um, ultimately, some of the most intriguing, compelling pieces of art come from someone just really, truly expressing uh, something that's true to them, something that's meaningful to them, something that's really important, that they're passionate about. Um, and other people can usually feel that and other people are usually drawn to that uh, in in a great art. So, um, you know, I, I wouldn't necessarily recommend taking as long as we did uh, with Chaotic Era in the development process, um, but it, it was a ton of fun. And, and me and Gabe have had an incredible amount of fun and we're continuing to have fun with it, even though we took this uh, this unorthodox approach to it. Um, and so I would definitely encourage, I would encourage folks to, to you know, Try and try and think about what is the most important thing to you in your game and what you're trying to create and put out in the world and really make sure um, that that's something that you prioritize in the process. I think if there's if there's one takeaway uh, from this, let it be that uh, don't necessarily design a map and then try and build a game out of that because maybe it won't work the second time around, but um, definitely think about what you're trying to get across and focus on that uh, and and really uh, make sure the things that you're passionate about and the things you're trying to express come through in the game and its mechanics in the gameplay uh, and in the in the atmosphere you're creating. Thanks everyone. Uh, I, I really appreciate um, Zach having me on the show. Uh, if you are interested at all in uh, chaotic era, if anything I just said to you made sense or sounded cool, uh, then I encourage you to sign up for our beta waitlist. We are currently in beta. You can head to www.bobbybobbybobby.com. That's B-O-B-B-Y three times.com uh, and sign up for the beta waitlist there. You can also follow us on Twitter at 
at chaotic underscore era or on our Bobby main account at Bobby Dimension. Uh, we're super active. We love Twitter. We love sharing, you know, interesting sci-fi interfaces and other cool stuff. So uh, please don't be shy and, and follow along there. Uh, yeah. Thanks so much. Uh, really appreciate you guys and uh, and have a wonderful day. And there you have it. Thoughts from Kevin Donnelly on how they kind of made their game Chaotic Era backwards. And I think longtime listeners um, will see some similarities to something I used to harp on all the time on the podcast. And I don't say it as much anymore, but it's still true. Um, I used to talk about a golden rule for game dev, and that was evoking a specific feeling. You would focus on an experience or feeling that's very specific, and you'd try to evoke that out of your players with your games. And here, I think this kind of lines up with what Kevin said about that classic like 80s and 90s sci-fi um, interfaces. The, the one that kind of pops out to me is the interfaces in the Alien franchise. The sort of like what they used to think futuristic computers would look like. And, he, and Kevin's right, they're very like tactile and almost like clunky in a realistic way. So yeah, I think this is a really good example of using that experience-driven game design. Now it's a very extreme example of that, but still I think it was uh, really cool. Big thanks to Kevin for coming on the show and talking about that. I'll have links to all the um, socials he mentioned and the website for Chaotic Era down in the show notes, so you should be able to just go down and click those, and that'll be super easy for you. If you want to get a hold of me and talk about game dev on Twitter, I'm at underscore Zaccavelli underscore, and I do do the occasional game dev stream at twitch.tv slash Zaccavelli underscore. With that, I'm going to end the show. I'll see you guys on the next episode of the Game Dev Field Guide.